Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today's show is brought to you by Supergrip ATV Tires. Supergrip ATV Tires, first off, are the best UTV tire that money can buy. But also, they are the most dependable tires in the ATV industry. They uh, are an 8-ply aggressive tire. I'm speaking specifically about the K9 tire with an available flat preventative liner uh, that resists seals and punctures. So you can venture anywhere with the confidence that Super Grip will get you back home. The K9 tire comes in a 27, a 30, a 32, and a 35. The uh, One thing I really want to highlight that I don't normally talk about is the Kevlar option. Kevlar is a synthetic fiber that is about five times stronger than steel. Kevlar is used in tires in one of two ways, as a replacement for the steel coils that form the tire's edge, known as the beads, or subtread, which is the protective layer that rests between the external rubber and the internal fabric casing that forms the tire structure. When the beads are made of Kevlar, the tires are lighter, by around 2 ounces or 56 grams each, and the tire can be folded up easily, something that can't be done with a regular nylon tire. When the casing or sidewalls include Kevlar, there is some added weight and a somewhat more rigid ride. But often these tires can go a year or more without a flat because of the Kevlar's ability to deflect glass and other sharp objects to defend the tube against punctures. So look, let me, let me break that down into layman's terms here. The Kevlar will uh, flex more uh, on the sidewall, but it's stronger. Boom. I've run these tires at three pounds for a couple rides, ran them at five and a half pounds for the last few rides. Absolutely a superior tire. Uh, really glad to have those guys on board. Uh, reach out to your local dealer. There's a shipment coming in mid-May and the end of May. SupergripATV.com, SupergripATV on Facebook and Instagram. Next, the show is brought to you by Dynajet Research, Inc. Uh, Dynajet Research, or just Dynajet, is the leading or the industry leader for UTV performance. Every single UTV tune or you know any kind of performance upgrade that includes some kind of reprogrammer actually uses the DynoJet Power Vision to get the tune into the vehicle. A lot of times you'll see that's the little the little module with buttons and a screen that comes with your uh, comes with your tuner or it comes with your tune preloaded. I want to talk about the Power Vision 3 tuner, which is what I run on my car. Um, the Power Vision, uh, our powerhouse fuel tuner made it made to optimize your power for more speed on the racetrack, better fuel efficiency on your commute, or anything in between. The Power Vision is able to hold multiple tunes at once, so roadside changes are a snap. And it can also monitor and track your progress to really get your engine roaring. The powerful tuning, with a wide range of tunes already loaded onto your PowerVision, this is an easy-to-use device that can start optimizing your vehicle right out of the box. It can track and monitor your progress to show you how to perfectly optimize tunes for your ride or driving style. If you're looking to get something even easier, you can purchase one of our thousands of tested tunes from our online library, perfected for stock or heavily modified vehicles. And that goes for all kinds of vehicles across the board, not brand specific. Uh, the, Power, the Power Vision 3 can hold multiple tunes at once, track and monitor progress. It's used with DinoJet's PowerCore software suite and available for hundreds, hundreds 
of vehicles, not just UTVs, by the way, folks. It also uh, gets installed very easily through the diagnostics port, and it can be mounted as an extra in instruments panel like I have it in my vehicle. Power Visions are even available for Harley-Davidson vehicles. Uh, they are used for all Harley-Davidsons with an ECM, 2 gigabytes of memory, and real-time data logging and calibration. Dinojet.com, Dinojet Research Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. Personal experience with this is a noticeable difference in shift points, uh, horsepower, and just the the it just kind of feels like my car is running right now. If that makes any sense, not that it was running wrong before, but it's definitely running better. Dinojet.com, Dinojet on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, uh, another sponsor we have is Infinite Off Road. Infinite Off Road has been with the show longer than anybody else. Um, <laughs> One thing I really love about Infinite Off-Road is they offer the world's craziest warranty without a doubt. A 25-year, you-break-it-they-fix-it warranty covering all Infinite Off-Road products, which includes rock lights, whips, wheel rings, light bars, pods, wiring, power controllers, uh, and a variety of different things as well. Um, everything that can be used on your UTV can also be used on your full-size, your tow rig, your wife's car, so in the event that, you know, if you're like me, you live in the country, uh, I personally like to have a little bit more lighting than just my stock headlights give me. Uh, I've got a light bar on my truck and it really helps when I'm coming through fog and I'm out here, uh, you know, either late at night or early in the mornings, you know, a couple critters running across the road. Having those LED lights on there really make a big difference in terms of either, you know, possibly running over or into them or running myself off the road. Uh, I have plenty of time to stop and do what I need to do and make the adjustment because these are the highest output lights at the most cost-effective prices. Infinite Off-Road is incredible. They also offer listeners to the show 10% off with code word ROCKS, R-O-C-K-S at checkout, infiniteoffroad.com, Infinite Off-Road on Facebook and Instagram. Last but not least, All Things UTV. All Things UTV is pretty amazing. They just bought a Pro XP and they're developing their inner fender liners for that Pro XP. They have a wonderful uh, slew of suspension upgrades and spring upgrades for your UTV. Uh, the tender spring upgrade, which will take your compressed tender spring and upgrade it to some usable suspension. I run that on my car right now and it's a definite noticeable difference in ride quality highly recommend it especially for the price it's so cheap um, another thing is if you notice that your springs uh, don't have two coils you don't have a tender spring but you have one spring you just need to check out their level up kit which will send you the dual rate spacer and it will send you the upgraded tender spring if, if that's your current setup highly recommend it again you don't even know what you're missing out on but that goes for all UTVs, that, that spring kit, that level up kit, Talon models, uh, every Razor model, Can-Am models, etc. Um, one thing that they're building, again, I just mentioned the inner fender liners. I've got them on my personal vehicle. You guys see this stuff on Facebook all the time, man. Sticks and all kinds of other junk come through the floorboard and hit people and people are in the hospital and I'm sure in a tremendous amount of pain, but I don't have to worry about that because I've got an inner fender liner that's molded, or not molded, but designed to fit very closely uh, to the firewall. It doesn't have any holes in it like other providers. Uh, and also, I mean, it's way better than stock plastic where stuff just comes flying through. 
don't have to worry about that so I can go fast on a trail, not worry about it at all. Allthingsutv.com, allthingsutv on Facebook and Instagram. Today on the show, I have quite possibly the most popular man in the off-road world. Ian Johnson from uh, what was the Power Block uh, TV show series, Extreme Off-Road, The Exor Shop, um, you know, Extreme 4x4, currently doing a two shows, one show on Amazon and then an, in the Big Tire Garage and another show on Motor Trend called Four Wheeler. I've watched them both. They're very entertaining and you'll enjoy both of them. Uh, let me just get right to it because I was very excited uh, to have Ian on the show, very blessed to have him take some time out of his schedule. So, without further ado, Ian Johnson. Get a drink and gather around. Let's talk drivers. Let's talk rigs. Let's talk skill. You've got the best of the best in the off-road racing world. Have a seat at the table with us and let's talk about racing on the rocks. I have... Ian Johnson, live. <laughs> How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you doing? Man, I am I am uh, ecstatic, to say the least. I'm just really, really, really excited to have you on board. Um, very, very lucky, and, and like uh, I'm like a kid. So super excited to have you on board. It's been a long day of work. It feels like a long week already. Uh, it's, just, it's just great to have you on. So uh, with that, what have you been doing? What are you up to today? So my, even though this whole quarantine thing happened, my life really hasn't changed because I'm usually in my shop alone. So I basically have, I still get up, come to the shop every day and I work. We got pushed back a little bit with our motor trend shoot, but that's actually going to get picked up next week. So we'll be back filming because it got released now. But uh, yeah, I just been working, cutting, grinding. We changed how we bring in my guys to film for Amazon and then, uh, so I had like a videographer in here one day a week and then doing a bunch of live stream stuff for a few companies that we do a lot of work for. So we've been yeah. doing a live stream for UConn and ESOB the past month, pretty much every week, which has been yeah. fun and fun for so, sure. Let me ask this it's right out of the gate. You have your Motor Trend show and you have a show on Amazon. Are they separate from each other? Yep. Yeah. So the I started the Amazon show. That was started the streaming show and the Amazon show right out of the gate um, and then working with Facebook watch and YouTube red and a couple other mm -hmm. streaming services. And then motor trend just sort of came out of the blue and they were like, Hey, would you want to do four wheeler TV? And originally I was like, no, cause you're going to make me sign some big crazy contract. Yeah. I don't want to do that. And, yeah. uh, but they were super cool. They were like, Nope, we just want you to do this off-road show for us. You know, four wheeler used to be four wheeler TV used to be big. We think it can come back. And, uh, and then it worked out even great, even better, because then we, we started talking about it. We had some back and forth here and there. And then they, they knew I was building this shop because they saw the post I was making on social media. And they just sort of said, hey, what if we just rented like half of your shop and turned it into the four-wheeler studio? So I was like, that's perfect. So half of my shop is four-wheeler and the other half is where we film Big Tire Garage. So yeah, it, it worked out really, really well. The Big Tire Garage stuff, it's different. It's like... It's one vehicle build, start to finish. It, every episode is right around like eight to ten minutes long, and it's just it's it's different. The four wheeler stuff is more vehicles, more fast paced, thirty minute traditional television show. So it's fun to get to do both all at the same time. 
Yeah. So let me, let me just say this. I don't come from a mechanical background at all. Don't come from cars or anything. I actually, when I was 16, I got a Jeep and, you know, obviously put like a rough country lift on it and put ugly mud tires on everybody's first mistake they ever make. <laughs> Look, nothing against rough country and some ugly mud tires, but we've all been there and there's always better. Um, so, yes, ma'am. I need How do you make a YouTube no, video? No. <laughs> here, come here. Come here. So this is, this is my lovely six-year-old stepdaughter who was bothering me on how to make a YouTube video. Well, I'll make a YouTube, YouTube video. video. <laughs> All right, go, 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 go. Um, but one thing <laughs> everyone has kids is exact understands exactly what's going on. Yep, exactly. But one thing that I found was I was flipping through Spike TV on a Sunday and I found your show and I watched all of the, the, the power block that they used to call it. I watched all of it. And, and I think you're the only person I've ever been able to sit down and watch a show about something mechanical like that. And, and they did it right. The flow, everything, it just clicks. And obviously I think that that's, um, that's something you had to work at. And I'm sure it, it got better as time went on because you're still doing it now. And, and what, how do you, how do you go about kind of framing yourself to a point where you can teach people, um, say this, how do you teach people about mechanics that don't know? Because in all reality, you taught me a lot more uh, than you probably would even imagine. Well, probably the easiest answer to that is because I was a teacher before I was a TV guy. So I right. taught high school auto shop for seven years before I started working in television. Yeah. So I think that was that was part of it, right? Because when you're teaching when you're teaching high school kids, you got to keep it entertaining or they're not, they're not going to stick around and yeah. you've got to make complicated processes. And this is anything, whether it's English or math or science or shop, mm -hmm. you have to take complex items and distill it down into small digestible chunks. And so that just sort of, I think that definitely helped it help me transition easy into mm -hmm. a how to television. And then also just, I let, I love the whole genre. I don't, I don't want to be Brad Pitt. I don't want to be Jeremy Clarkson. I don't want to be those guys. I want to be Norm Abram. I want to be the guy that shows you how to build something. And I just happen to be working in television. So I've been fortunate, but I've never kind of like been, oh, this is, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go make a movie or something like that. Mm -hmm. I've been, I've just been happy with what I've been able to do. And I think that's, so teaching helped. And then also just sort of finding that niche and really liking it. And I think that sort of helped out a lot too, for sure. But I appreciate you saying that you learned a lot. I think that's the best part. I love, I'll get, especially with when social media sort of took off, mm -hmm. you know, because social media is newer than we like to think, right? It feels like it's been around yeah. forever. But, you know, 2006, seven, eight is when it started to really get busy and big. And sort of to basically have people constantly send me messages and, and uh, say, hey, thanks to you, I built this Jeep or I knew how to weld this thing. I, I, I love that because that's super cool. So I, I think, I think it's great, a great, it's a great way to make a living. No questions asked. You know, being a tradesperson is awesome, and mm -hmm. uh, it's also a great way to spend your your time too. It's a great way to spend time with your family too. Yeah. So there's one thing I love about the fact of you know your career as a host on these TV shows is you've covered every single type of car and every single type of rig and every level of budget. I mean, you've hit every angle. So it's it's been awesome to watch. Um, but where would you say? You know, let me ask this. Where would you say was your favorite time period where you were working on your favorite uh, projects and, and everything just felt right? 
is it now or was it was it in the past no it's whenever it's so it's whatever i'm building what i'm building right now when it's like at that point where it's starting to look like a, a vehicle that's where i get yeah. super excited right so like right now back through that door right wait that right there there's uh, there's uh, i'm working on my 53 wildes wagon and that project it's been, i've had it forever i've had it for like four or five years and i kept putting it off and i had ways i wanted to build it and it changed a few times but it's at the point right now where it's like you know i just basically bought a shell and so yeah. now the, the floors are back in it. It's sitting on the chassis. The suspension's under it. The tires are under it. It's, it looks like a car. That's my mm -hmm. favorite part right there. And that's that to me is like that's. And then also, I think I also like when I'm doing something I've never done before. So like on this wagon, I'm doing like a whole bunch of bodywork stuff that I normally would completely shy away from. I, I'm not that type of person who can like put in patch panels and because I hate when you stitch all that stuff together and it looks like you know dog poo and then yeah. you grind it all off i just i my brain could never get there but i spent a lot of time the past couple of years with my buddy kevin tates and uh seeing him take like what looks like hammered dog crap grind on it put a little filler on it and then paint it looks gorgeous uh -huh. so now i'm kind of like you know what i kind of got to push past that and do some body work so on this one it's like it's like a full hot rod you know we've done all these patch panels in it it's got custom body mods and all this stuff that i normally wouldn't do and, and that, which is kind of cool because I've been doing this for like God, almost 30 years now building cars. Mm -hmm. So to do something that I've never done before, I think that's, that's my favorite part. Is when you find something new to learn, that, that's the best part of the whole thing, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there's so much to it. When you, when you start like I did from an absolutely clean slate, uh, I was 16, total green pasture, had no idea. Uh, I'm now 25. And the only way I've learned how to do most of what I do now is I've broken everything and you have to take it apart and put it back together. So uh, <laughs> that's a big help. That's the best help. way to learn. That's the yeah. best way to learn. Yeah. Um, what would you say has was the hardest thing, the hardest like trial that you went through in terms of learning how to do one specific thing? I mean, obviously there's skills that you learn throughout that's a long time, yeah, but it's the one that's just rough. Yeah. Yeah, so I bought I bought an 85 Jeep CJ7. I think I bought it when I was like 17 or 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And I put a big old motor in it, which was a huge mistake. And I, same as you, I did all the wrong things. I didn't sprung over on 35s with an AMC 20 <laughs> in the back. It was just, it was terrible, was terrible decisions. Ruined that Jeep. And um, basically, and then it had a great 258 straight six, but I didn't like that. I wanted a V8 underneath the hood. And just, and I, so I, put a 360 in it and it just destroyed transmissions on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, but the good thing about that truck was at the time I hated it because every time I drove it, I'd burn up the transmission, no questions asked. But at the same time, I couldn't afford to pay someone to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. And I was going through college to be a mechanic. So I figured I should build it myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but even when I was at my college, I talked to my teachers. They'd be like, hey, can you help me rebuild this transmission? And they wouldn't, they didn't know how to do it. And so I had to learn myself. So I rebuilt that transmission, I think like 13 or 15 times before it actually stayed together. But the good thing is at the time, that was such a, such a pain in the ass. And it was the trials and tribulations of just the, the fight of getting that Jeep to move forward. Mm -hmm. You fast forward like five years when I finished my apprenticeship, and write my mechanics license, a job opened up as a transmission specialist at the dealership I was working at. And it was like a no-brainer. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go be a transmission guy. And that helped me basically write my ticket. I could ask any price I wanted to work at any dealership 
because nobody wanted to work on transmissions. And then that segued into doing drive lines and transfer cases and front axles and rear axles. And that that's just that's sort of how I paid the bills, I guess, for many, many years now. So even though it was a, just a just a backbreaker at the time, and you look back on it now, it's like if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I am today. So that, yeah. that, that I think, is, is the best way to look at it. I, I would agree with you. And, and it's so funny. If I had to pick something that's probably the most intimidating, it would probably be transmissions. So I rightfully believe your answer there. Uh, well, when I was gonna, when I was deciding what specialty I wanted at the dealership, the, uh, I wanted to be an engine guy, but the engine guy, it was a big GM dealership. And the engine guy told me, don't be an engine guy. I just put crate motors in. That's all I do all day long. The strut blocks come in and I put them in. That's all I do. And uh, he said, the only people who rebuild anything anymore are transmission guys. Be a transmission guy and you'll, you'll be able to write. And it, he was right. Because nobody knew how to work on a transmission. I have guys who've been working as mechanics for 20 years, and they just they were scared of them. And so it was great. I mean, I was like 19 years old, and you know I could basically when the other transmission guy went on vacation, I could I could walk into the boss's office and ask for a raise, and there was no question. Just because wow. they're like, yep, because they had to get the transmissions done by Friday, and it was great. So yeah, it, it, it's a great specialty to have for sure. So tell me a little bit about the the arc where you like you know have have skipped your way all the way to where you are now in your career because you said you started a dealership and now you're TV host on two different you know two different huge shows so tell me fill in the details. So it was it was it was pretty pretty like lucky in a way. <laughs> so I was I started graduated high school and I did I knew I wasn't going to go to college university or to be a doctor or lawyer that so I knew I was going to be a mechanic. I knew that when I was like 16 years old. So I started working my way, got my apprenticeship done, signed, wrote my license, got my license, and then I was working as a mechanic and then a few years in as a mechanic, probably about 6 7 years in, I was kind of getting that 7 year itch. I didn't know what I wanted to do and and uh, but my parents were teachers. And they always had the summers off. And I was like, man, I love summer. I hate winter. Sure would be great if I didn't have to work in the summer. And uh, so I called my mom up and I was like, hey, can I be a teacher, a shop teacher? And she's like, yeah, you can. You just have to do this, this, this. And you can you know, go back to school for a year and, and get your teaching degree and, and you'll be on your way. And you should do it now because there's a shortage of shop teachers because they're all retiring. So that's what I did. I became a shop teacher. And uh, did that for the same thing, six, seven years. And uh, I was sitting at home on the, uh, watching TV with my wife. I think we'd only been married for maybe a year. And uh, this, this TV show came on called Monster Garage. And I watched it. And at the end of the show, it said, apply to be on the show. And so I went and I applied on the internet to be on the show. And two weeks later, I was in Long Beach, California, filming a Monster Garage episode. And I stayed friends with all the production guys from mm -hmm. that from that shoot we're still friends today and uh i was back home and about six eight months later one of them called me out and he's like hey do you watch this thing called power block and i was like yeah i watch trucks and hot rod tv every weekend of course i do okay. and he said they're going to be looking for a host and the commercial's going to air this weekend you should apply and so i watched it and sure enough the commercial came out and i just once again applied online and i I kind of got a short list. I got shortlisted because I'd done TV before. That was kind of like the first mm -hmm. question, right? Have you been on TV before? And uh, so they flew a bunch of us into Nashville. They had 5,000 applicants. They flew us all into Nashville and they said, uh, you know, we did a couple of screen test things. And, and then literally I flew home thinking, there's no way I'm going to get this job. And uh, 
two weeks later, we were starting to shoot the first episode of Extreme. So it was that fast. And it was all just right place, right time kind of thing, 100%. That's amazing. Uh, is that where you are? You know you're in the Tattoo area. What's that? I didn't, I didn't hear you. Uh, is that why why you landed where you are now? Because I know that you're in Tennessee, you're in that yeah. national area. Yeah. So so <laughs> RTM Productions that that hosted Extreme, which created Extreme Four by Four, they yeah. were based out of Nashville because the guy who started the company, Jose Lawrence, when he started it, he there there was only like three cable companies in the whole country, and one of them was this small little cable company called the Nashville Network, which was would broadcast out what happened at the Grand Ole Opry every weekend and then just filled in stuff around that. And he knew that, you know, if he came to Nashville, he was from New York. He knew if he came to Nashville and, and made TV here that he could be on that network very easily because they were always just looking for shows to be on that network. Mm -hmm. And then that was pre-cable TV. That was back when everything was going out over antennas. <laughs> and uh, then when cable took off, he was just – same thing, right place, right time. And they were, you know, these cable companies just wanted more and more channels and one of them swallowed up TNN and then that became Spike TV. And so he was, that just sort of all sort of landed in this Nashville area. And then, uh, so we moved down here for the show and, uh, you know, we've been down here ever since. We, you know, we, we've bought property down here for the new studios and put the new studios up on it. And uh, it's it's a good place. I like it. It's a good spot. I, it's a good place to live. It's it's, uh, you know, there's not real winter, but there's still a little bit of a winter, so I'm happy with it. Yeah, so uh, where are you from originally? That, that'll that help key in on the winter comment there. <laughs> so ori originally, I'm from Canada. I'm from Ontario, Canada. Uh, I grew up uh, in Ontario, um, uh, born there, a small little town called Smith Falls, Ontario, which is just outside Ottawa, where it's like, people always ask, you know, how cold does it get? When does it get cold? And uh, I had a motorcycle I used to ride, and I used to tell people, you always put the motorcycle away in, on Thanksgiving, which in Canada is in uh, early October, mm -hmm. and then you get it out on June 1st. So that's winter. So that's a long winter. Oh. That's, <laughs> it's great. It's great if you like winter, but I never mm -hmm. like winter. I always hated winter. So Yeah. So, so I'm actually uh, – I actually don't think I'm too far from you. I'm actually in Murfreesboro, so yep. I'm just a, a skip hop and a jump away. And uh, I know that you know I've seen you. You uh, you did some recent travels kind of around this area on a little expedition. Um, mm -hmm. Adventure Off Road Park's always been a, a good park. Woolies Off Road is always a good park. Uh, I know that those were some that the shows used very often. Um, you know, now that you've made kind of this area, the Southeast, this Tennessee area, your home and you know your primary wheeling spot, how does it compare when you go out to a Moab or a Johnson Valley? What do you think, you know, do you ever have that, man, maybe I should live here? Uh, so when I go to Moab, I, I get that feeling occasionally. Mm -hmm. And then I do like the Southwest. That's where my son's in college. He's down in, in Tucson. Well, not now. He's back home, but he goes to school in Tucson. I love the Southwest. I think it's absolutely beautiful. My wife and I talked about moving to the Southwest, but mm -hmm. there's that whole like lack of water thing that might happen in a few years. <laughs> so we, we kind of thought it, we kind of planned against that, but um, the, the, for doing what I do, this area is perfect. So I love going out west. I would not want to have to run a, a television production company that, that specializes in off-roading out west. 
Because whenever you start playing around on government land and you want to film on it, it's a nightmare. It's it's permits and it's it's BLM advisors. It's extra people you have to take with you. It's 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 much more complicated than just you know popping over to AOP and, and killing some hills with a camera crew for the afternoon. So it yeah. does make it a lot does make it a lot harder to to do that. But you know it's I, I love I love both areas, especially with the wheeling. I think it's fun. I don't get caught up in this which one's harder because mm-hmm. they're all completely different. Um, but it is fun to be able to travel around the country and go wheeling for sure. No yeah, we we live in a really unique place where we can have so many different versions of terrain all within a driving, you know, a couple of days drive. So yeah, and I mean that when my son was picking what college to go to, that's what I told him. I'm like, dude, this is the best part. The pe- people who are like in Canada, you don't have a choice. You know, you've got you've got you could go to Vancouver, British Columbia, where it rains all the time, like Seattle, or you're in just the same climate. It's cold in the winter and hot in the summer. That's your only options. And whereas, you know, when you get in the States, it's like, if you like mountains, you go to Colorado. If you like desert, you go to Arizona. If you like, if you like fishing, you pop up the main, like that's the coolest part about this country. The geography in this country is amazing. That's what I love. I've driven, I drive across this country at least two times a year. Um, mm-hmm. on for different wheeling trips and everyone kind of laughs at me they're like why would you drive like we drove out to king of the hammers and they're mm-hmm. like why would you drive to king of the hammers i'm like that's that's the that's the best part i love driving across the country because it's so awesome to see yeah. all those different areas so uh i'll actually i'm going to loop back to king of hammers because i want to pick your brain about some things and get your take on this year um but before we go there so uh, you primarily build full-size rigs uh, just in the past. You've built a couple of side-by-sides. Um, and I want to ask you about the, the side-by-sides first. Yep. It just it doesn't seem like the side-by-side is your vehicle of choice. Why no, is it? Okay. It's, it's because oh. of the price point. It's the price point to get into it. So mm-hmm. I, it's the same reason why I don't even own a JK. And I, I still have trouble justifying buying a JK. I can I buy a JK it. now because it's like, I can about ten years eight nine grand, you know. Yeah. For me, it's the it's it's the I don't understand for the way I build a rig. For me to like go out and spend like twenty five thousand dollars on a vehicle to then put another twenty five thousand dollars into it, I just my brain can't get there. Um, so I'm normally shopping for like vehicles that are like you know a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, because I'm going to replace ninety percent of it anyway, and that's just sort of how I am. Um, I did, I think side-by-sides are cool. I love driving them and I think they're fun. I think they are a great part of our sport because it gives people that instant gratification of getting out in the dirt without having to, you know, spend a year building a Jeep and then Mm -hmm. go wheeling, you know? So I think it has introduced a lot of people to our sport, which Mm -hmm. I think is great. Um, But no, the the, the main reason the side-by-side is not my number one go-to vehicle is just that, that, cost to get in that, that initial purchase. I don't know you can finance them, but that's just not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Um, I wheeled by, I had a two door JK on coilovers and, and like had fully blown it out. I, what would you say like sensation wise when you're driving a full size vehicle on, on, you know, uh, live axles, big tires, everything. It just does that sensation compare to what you get in a side by side if you're just trail riding in general, or is it just two completely different beasts? I think it's two. It's two completely different things. So the, the best way I can describe it is we had I had a side by side once on 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 the on the show, 
we had a Polaris 1K. I think it was when it first came out. We built one for a giveaway. And uh, and it was funny because I went out to Woolies and rode around. And it was fun. We had a great time. And then the very next day, I said to my son, I'm like, hey, let's go wheeling. So I grabbed one of the two buggies. And I, and, uh, I said, let's go to Woolies. And I want to drive it and so and see if it feels the exact same way as the side-by-side did. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order, like, you can be ripping through the woods in the side-by-side, and it feels like you're going, like, a 1,000 miles an hour, and you're doing, like, you know, 45, 50. To get that same sensation in, like, my Ultra 4 car, you've got to be doing, like, a buck 20. So there's that, there, I think there's that, that sort of, like, it feels so cool because it's so small. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bigger cars, I mean, I think it's just, it's just the... Uh, you got to move them so much faster to get some to get that same sensation inside of them. That makes sense. And and one thing I always kind of thought about was out here in the east, we don't really have the space to open everything up super wide like that. So to get that same you know high speed version of the sensation, uh, I really think that especially on the east coast, we just get robbed of it. Unless you want to go to like a a dirty turtle or something like that, where they have the design track for it. Um, we just don't have the terrain for it, but rock crawling wise, just two totally different worlds. Oh, I think so. I, it is. It, I mean, you, you watch a, you take a side by side out and then you take a, a, you know, a Jeep or a, a crawler out. They're just too complete. Now I say that. And then the, this new Honda side by side that has like an actual transmission in it. Mm-hmm. Everyone I know that's driven that they're like, it's a game changer because the drivetrain is so much similar to, you know, like a, like a, a, a Jeep or something would be because you've got gears, you can pick mm-hmm. your gear, you can have low range with multiple gears. And uh, so it might be different. But to me, it's when you crawl them, you almost have to crawl them like an IFS Ultra 4 car. You've got to like, you drive it completely different than you drive a Jeep. And, uh, and that's just the way it is. I, I think they're cool. But like you said, when you, where they really shine, like when you go to, King of the Hammers and KM's got their trailer there with like 30 side by sides, and you can just walk up and just write your name on a list and get in one and bomb across the desert. That's where you're thinking, this is pretty it's it killed this it, it killed the sand car. Like nobody's building long travel sand cars anymore because that was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And you know, you can spend fifty grand and have an amazing side by side. In the yeah. Desert, no questions asked. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, the trails out east here, I, I pick on adventure uh, often because it's it's so it goes from zero to Captain Insane real quick, and yeah. it's just such a different perspective because you know the the blue trails there are, uh, are 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 just these small rocks, but the black trails there are very serious. Have you seen the new trails like Little Caesars and Oatmeal Creek? Dude. Yeah, we were out on the backside looking at Little Caesars, and I mean, those are. I think I think that's the tricky part, right? So for these parks, it's. I mean, you've got you. It, it's a fine line where you want to have like trails for everyone to ride, but then you want to have like throw down buggy trails for so you can have the rock bouncers come out because that brings a whole bunch of spectators out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a tough mix, I think. And then those when you think about it, a hill, you make a, a trail out of a hill that's like impossible to climb. That's not a very big trail versus if you want to do like a creek bed through somewhere, it, it's a lot more property you got to eat up to get that trail through. I'm excited to see Golden Mountain open back up because I thought it yeah. always had a good mix of those yeah. trails. So that's what I'm yeah. super excited about. Now, 
for those who primarily wheel on the East Coast, how does how does that compare to a, a Moab or a Colorado trail just in like scale and things like that? Because I mean, we think the rocks here are big, but I've heard Johnson Valley, the rocks are, you know, five times the size. It's just the traction. It's the difference. It's all it is is traction, 100%. It's traction and perspective. So, I mean, like you, like you said, you go to AOP, some of those bouncer hills, they're insane. But if you roll off them, you're probably going to hit a tree on yeah. the way down. So you may get like one roll out mm -hmm. maybe, and then you're going to get hung up in some, in some timber. Whereas when you're out in like Moab, Colorado, not so much Colorado, it's got some big trees, but Johnson Valley, if you come off some stuff, you don't stop until you get all the way to the bottom. And it's all rock. So like when we flop here, you know, you, you may lay over, you may land, you're gonna land in some dirt, maybe some mud, some sand, you may hit a rock. When you roll in Johnson Valley, it's just painful because it's all rock all the way down. So every time the buggy flops or every time it rolls over on its side, it's just it just shakes you, it just rattles your teeth every time you fall off a rock there. But the, and then aside from that, it's just traction. I, I will say this, wheeling in Moab, I never worry that my rig's gonna break. I'm just, I don't. Because there's so much traction, you can crawl everything, you can pick your line, you can sort of, you can be up on two wheels anywhere on the West Coast and if you don't, if it doesn't feel good, you can just hit the brakes and just stop and the car won't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. On the East Coast, you know, when you're hitting big stuff here, you're always scared that you're gonna break because in order to get up some of this stuff, it's like always full throttle, tire spinning, just hoping that you'll get traction somewhere, maybe bounce off a tree or clip a rock. And that's when, to me, that's when something when something goes wrong. Like, oh, I just, in my head, I can just see the drive shafts underneath the truck. Just, uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I hope they don't come to the floor. That's yeah. All yeah. I, uh, I had, we had an experience, me and my buddies, we had an experience like that at Hale Mountain. Uh, we had an old YJ with tons under it and we got a, a flat. It was like a, he was on 42s and got a flat and uh, ended up having a driveline issue. We ended up with a broken rear drive shaft that came through the floor and a front ring and pinion that snapped. And it was probably the worst day of my life because yeah. we actually ended up selling the Jeep on the side of the trail for like 800 bucks because we were, <laughs> we were just like, we'd, uh, we, we sat there for probably five or six hours trying to figure out how to do it, how to get it out. We've got a unit, like a Unimog was floating around the, the trails and like we were just in the woods enough where he tried to yank us out and he couldn't really get to us. So it was a terrible day. But I think that's the other thing. I mean, the thing about a side-by-side -side is, I mean, you know, even the big ones maybe weigh 20, 2,400, 2,600 pounds. Right. I mean, you, you take a built four-door JK on tons, you know, if you're lucky, it weighs 6,000 pounds. It's probably yeah. closer to seven when it's all yeah. said and done. That's a lot of weight to drag through the woods, you know, when, when something goes wrong to get it out. I've pulled out, I've, I've this year at Hammers, I had to pull uh uh holly and her and her big jk it's mm -hmm. a big it's got a big dana 80 in the back and and it and but i mean i was pulling it up because she broke a u-joint um on on come up plaque line on sledge and it's just a big truck to sort of pull through the rocks it, it, mm -hmm. it's it's work to get them out when they break for sure so let's talk about the racing scene because uh, for those who don't remember uh you built uh the the lambo bouncer hey, was that the official name of it I think so. We call that Raging Bull. That's what we call Raging it. Raging Bull. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's actually uh, my, my nice software here. Let's see here. I can pop us up a picture. How's that? 
Um, so there's the bouncer for those who, who aren't familiar, but you actually came out to a, a Southern rock race and you raced this bad boy. Um, what do you think about the, the East coast racing scene right now? Are the Hills, or let me just, let me just start there. What do you think about the East coast racing scene, uh, scene right now? I love it. I love the rock bouncer stuff. I think it's super cool. It's, 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 you're comparing, um, you know, apples to oranges when you compare like ultra four stuff to rock bouncing stuff, it's like comparing, you know, endurance racing to drag racing, you sure. know, drag racing is like, you know, that, that to me is what rock bouncing is. It's, it's short, it's quick. I think it's great because it's easy for people to watch. It's easy for people to see. Um, I think that they can have a good time. They can just pull up. Whereas, I mean, if you try to go to King of the Hammers, King of the Hammers is hard to watch as a spectator. It's better to stay home. I mean, yeah. that's just a challenge. And as a matter of fact, when you go to King of the Hammers, when we work the live stream, we're up on stage, there's probably 100 people sitting on lawn chairs watching the Jumbotron in mm -hmm. the middle of the desert when they could just be sitting at home getting the same thing because there's no way to watch it. It's, just, it's very, very hard. So I, I love the East Coast races. I do miss... Do you remember the e-course race? Remember the e-course yeah. racing? Yeah, that's I, I love races. I would love to see some of that stuff come back because I, yeah. I think that was lots of fun for sure. Yeah, so let me ask you this because the technology, I interview a lot of the bouncer guys. Um, the technology in these machines are just moving at such a high pace rate. Obviously, um, Tim Cameron's probably in the front on the technology side in terms of uh, the new IFS car he has from Triton Engineering, that whole bulkhead. Uh, do you think that that car, I mean, is that where rock bounces are headed or, or, is, or is the old tried and true solid axle front and rear? Uh, what do you think about all that? I think it depends on the driver. I think, I think the solid axle car is, can definitely still perform well. I mean, if you look, you look at some of the stuff that Jake Burke and those guys are building down at Busta Knuckle and the yeah. horsepower they're throwing at it. I think the, the, the difference is, is I think, I think what will happen is at some point in time, I think somebody is going to build a rock bouncer that is going, they're going to realize, they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't, I, I need this chassis to this last like four races. Mm -hmm. And if you look at an ultra four car, like if you de-skin an ultra four car, there's no tubing there. Like, especially if you look at some of the camel cars, mm -hmm. uh, some of their, some of their cars, it's, you would look at it and say, there's not a lot of, of stuff there. Well, mm -hmm. bouncers are heavy mm -hmm. and that's why the horsepower goes so high because, but, it, but if you have a, 6,800 or 6,500 pound bouncer, and then you have 1,800 horsepower. Well, that's a lot of that's a lot of wear and tear on parts. I think what's going to happen is I think someone's going to start chasing the light end of the scale. And Travis Lovett did it for a while. Him and I talked about it. He was like, "Lighter's faster, lighter's faster." And he kept he was scaling his his rigs down for a while and trying to get chase that lightness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're going to see next. I think you'll sort of see that transformation from all the crazy tubing, which yeah. makes them look cool, which I think is awesome. But at the same time, if you're really going after just the race, you would go in there and say, I'm just gonna build something that has just enough tube so I'll live. Mm -hmm. And if something <laughs> bad happens, and I'm gonna make it incredibly light. And that, that'll be the bouncer that sort of changes things. I don't know if IFS is gonna be a huge deal because when you talk to some of the, like even the Ultra 4 guys, they'll tell you, IFS in the rocks is not better than uh, a solid axle car. I think if they, if we, and then it's also part of it's also on some of the, uh, some of the sanctioning bodies, right? Like some of the guys make those trails 
pretty yeah. pretty easy. To, they're they're a, they're a sandhill climb, right? Where yeah. an IFS car is going to do really really well, but if you throw a bunch of rocks and some turns in there. Um, that's where the that's where you're going to have to add rear steer or you know a solid axle car will always turn tighter than than an IFS car all day long. So that that was kind of the 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 track that I was walking that question into because. Um, I, I ask a lot of the racers, you know, what do you think of the race courses? Are they picking the right hills? And a lot of them are telling me, you know, this is a drag race fastest to the top. It's not, we, we, they've strayed so far from the whole bounty hill idea that they're more doing a drag hill. And, you know, after my digging and interviews with these guys, uh, it really comes down to, you know, where can spectators come watch? Can they get the spectators there? And then can they keep everybody safe? And, you know, in the event of, bad situation can they get you know an ambulance or what have you back into where they are uh so I, I wanted to pick your brain about it and it's not an easy question and i'm not sure that there's an answer but uh you know it's a very interesting time as a as a fan to see them run the same hills over and over and over again yeah i mean it's tricky because i get it because i've seen that and i've watched them all right i mean we chased that bounty hill for so long where mm -hmm. it was like it's like you make the bounty hill so hard that nobody's going to climb it. But if someone does, it's a huge payout. Well, yeah. the fans don't like watching that because recovery takes so long. Yeah. You know, I, I think to me, I think the way I kind of like how you've got some of the races now where there's a jump at the bottom and a turn. I like mm -hmm. those. I like the ones where, you know, it's up and then maybe back down and back up again. I think those are interesting. I think as a, as a, the side-by-side -side stuff, I think, is incredibly fun to watch, but I think it's dangerous as all get out. Um, but it's, uh, but I, and I, I, but it's the same thing. It's that whole spectator thing, right? You want people to be able to watch it and to get them there and to get people out if something bad happens. But I think the, to me, I think it's it's going to boil down to when you look at the, if you go look at some of the XRA stuff, what they did back in the day was they had like. Two two races would go on, and there was something happened on one. They had like a couple race courses built in at one time, so you could do that on a bounty hill where a guy runs a bounty hill. Maybe have two hills, and you got to run them both. But when this guy's getting recovered over here, you can have another race going on over here. There's, I think, there's ways to do it, but it, it is it's tricky because that's a, that's a great idea that I hadn't heard of or thought about. That's excellent. Yeah. Because that's what it boils down to is it's, you have to have stuff for people to watch or they're not going to stand out in the middle of the forest and watch guy. Because you've seen some of those recoveries. Some of those AOP hills, I mean, they're terrible. It's what? The recovery is is an hour on some of those yeah. hills. It's just terrible. Yeah. And, and a lot of that goes into, you know, the fact that those hills are as unclimbable as they are. You know, you fall back and all of a sudden you're, you're between a rock, a tree, another hard place and you're upside down and it's, you know, it, it does truly take an hour. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree with you. And it makes for cool, it makes for cool, it makes it cool when somebody climbs it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I also liked when SRS for a little while they were do like, they do the race and then they'd have a bounty hill, you mm -hmm. know, at the end or some people can hit it if they wanted to or not. And Bobby yeah. was always up to hit that hill, no questions asked. So yeah. I think there's, I think there's a good mix. I think it would be cool to see the series sort of, if someone took like a bouncer series, whoever it is, and mixed it up a little bit. Like I, I kind of liked Ultra Four when it was considered the, what King of the Hammers before it was Ultra Four it was considered the Super Bowl of off road racing. Mm -hmm. So you you came with your Wee Rock car or your XRA car, and that was back when people weren't building Ultra Four cars. It didn't exist yet. 
So I think it'd be cool if someone made an East Coast series where it was like, hey, you know, this race is a hill climb. This one is something that's a little bit different. Maybe it's like a mega truck thing. Or And the goal is to build one vehicle to do all of those things. It has to be the same vehicle type of thing. I, I, I get I like when stuff like that happens. I think that's super cool. Yeah, I agree with you. And 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 um, an easy one to I say pick on in the in the most respectful regard is the gold rush buggy. I mean, it, its main issue that it's had this year is the fact that, uh, and it's the sixteen hundred horsepower bouncer from working them. Uh, main issue is that it, it has sat at the bottom of the hills waiting in, in in previous races, and the reason it had issues and was unable to finish got DNFs was because it couldn't run for that long. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you. I think it would be really cool to have, you know, if there's 10 races in the series, three of those races are two mile loops and they have a yeah, hill climb in them and something just so that people have to be able to do it. Because again, when you're building just a drag car, it's really good at one thing uh, yeah. that can be boring. I mean, you look at some of those, you look at some of those dedicated drag cars. I mean, they don't even run a cooling system. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, there's no cooling system at all to save weight and, and just, and the motor is just a, billet block of, mm-hmm. of, of aluminum and, and you just put a whole bunch of power through it. And and then, I, you know, when you look at stuff like Hot Rod Drag Week, you know, you can't take that car in Hot Rod Drag Week because you got to drive it on the street. Yeah. To me, I like, I like, like, Holly LS Fest has a super cool class where it's like, you've got a drag race and then you got a road race and then you have to go on a cruise and then you have to do something else. I can't remember whether it's a slalom or, or maybe mm-hmm. the, the one of those parking lot things. I To me, that's cool. To me, I, that's why I like things like Ultimate Adventure and all yeah. that kind of stuff, because I love the fact that, I mean, you're taking a vehicle and you abuse it off-road and then drop onto the highway and drive it to the next trail and then abuse it off-road. That's why I love what, what Matt at Busted Knuckles doing with this, with this sort of trail riding series with that JK. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to see that, because to me, I mean, that's also attainable, right? Mm-hmm. If someone's, someone's not going to go out and buy a bouncer, there's mm-hmm. a very, that's a very small market, but if someone's like, hey, I can get a Jeep and I can drive it to work and then I can go hit some trails and have some fun and, and then drive it over here and hit another trail. I think that, that makes the vehicle definitely worth the money that you're going to invest in it instead of having an $80,000 drag car that sits in, on a trailer most of the time. You know, I very much agree with you. Um, and I think that that, uh, that whole mentality of what you just said, it, it shines through in all your work because you build cars that uh, can not only go hit the hardest uh, trail in the park, but also that can get you to and from the trail. So I think that that's one really, um, in my opinion, you have kind of kept alive. I think I used to have that mentality because I was in the Jeep world a little bit more, um, but now being in side by sides, I don't even think about it. I'm like, if I total it, it goes on the trailer and I go <laughs> in the garage and I cannot think about it for a couple of days. But I, I very much, I, I agree. And I think you're on, I think you're, you're on with that. Um, but you mentioned Ultra Four. You mentioned King of Hammers. Um, obviously, you are an integral part of that race. Uh, you are the voice that we all get to hear, which is really, really cool. You do a phenomenal job. Um, and also, shout out to the media team where we can see everything that's happening in the desert. That is an amazing feat on its own. Um, but what did you think of this year's uh, 4400 race? I thought it was cool. I think I think it's getting and Dave Cole will hate and this will guarantee that it'll be near impossible next year. I think the race course itself is getting a little easier because the drivers are coming back pretty fast. Yeah. I think also the fact that um, someone entered a, a Can Am UTV and finished top fifteen that's not a good 
sign for the 4,400 guys that somebody can, you know, he's a phenomenal driver and it's a good machine, but yeah. that shouldn't happen in 4,400. That just shouldn't be allowed. Um, but I thought the race itself was great. I like that there's a new king. I was getting tired of the same people winning it over and over and over again. So I'm glad that someone else won it. I'm glad that a solid axle car won it. I'm always happy when solid axle cars win it because I think even though that's a quarter million dollar solid axle car, it's still, when people look at it, they're like, oh, it's, uh, I could build a rock car like that. So it's attainable for them. But I think the race itself was, it was pretty epic because it was just changing leads every 30 yeah. seconds. You know, you never in first place, they, I mean, you had a curse. <laughs> if yeah. you were, if no, you're... We, we made that joke. We said, we got to stop announcing that we have a new leader because the minute that we said, physically leading the race, they were over fixing their junk on the side of the trail. So yeah, yeah. So let me say this, you hit all of all three of my talking points in your in your in, in your answer there. Uh, first off, the 4400 race, you're exactly right. Probably the most entertaining it's been in the past four or five years, in my opinion. It was awesome. Uh, you guys did. I mean, uh, not only was the race great, obviously, the carnage is, 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 is as, an, as a spectator, the carnage is just that like, you know, the, the drama in all of it. Uh, but the, the commentary was great. The media was great. The actual coverage was awesome. Um, so, you know, hat, my hat goes off to all of you guys and Ultra 4. Um, but uh, I think you're right. So I'm a side-by-side guy. And uh, I've, I interviewed Hunter Miller, and I got his take on it. And I actually interviewed Jay Calloway, who started either on the line behind Cody Miller, who, who ran in the Can-Am, um, or he started uh, with Cody. And he said, basically, he was the first one that brought it to my attention, um, it's a, it's a gigantic safety issue. And then we'll talk about the course piece of it. But uh, he, he was like, man, it was so cool to be on this guy and just like running with him through the desert. He was like, it was like nothing. And he was like, you know, I was kind of keeping my eye on him, making sure. But he said, as soon as he went to Cougar Buttes, you know, he was, he would drop down and Cody would go over and he'd be like, I can't, I can't, I can't go. I can't go. Cause I, I don't see him. If I, if I go over and I crush him, he was like, I'm going to never forgive myself. And yeah. he basically said that he, out of pure sportsmanship, couldn't drive the race that he wanted to race. And obviously, he ended up having some bad luck. It's King of Hammers. It's what happens. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know from a safety perspective if I think a, if a UTV should be in the 4400 class. Um, now, here's here's the caveat. It's his own machine. It's his life. He should, you know, if he wants to race it, let him race there's a lot of people that want to jump off buildings. We don't let them. So yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I think it's, to me, I understand the theory behind it, but at the end of the day, I think when you look at like score, mm -hmm. they, they put UTVs out there with trophy trucks and a trophy truck is a hell of a lot faster and can do a hell of a lot more damage than an ultra four car could do to, and they even put motorbikes and quads out in front of those things. Mm -hmm. So, I think it's, um, I think it's, and I mean, yeah, it's a UTV, but that thing was not a stock UTV okay. anyways, you know? So, I mean, do I think a stock UTV should be up there? Absolutely not. But that yeah. thing was, that thing was chassis and, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh no, it was a stock Can-Am. It, it was not a stock Can-Am. There was so many modifications done to that thing. It was probably <laughs> as well built as an ultra four car. I think, I think what, what, what what is the the deciding factor on that is there is a the kid that there's a 
the rule in Ultra 4 is there's the race course and you have to be within 50 feet of it. And 50 feet is a long way when you're in those, some of those rock trails. And I think a lot of people take a lot of bypasses in, in those races. So I think, I, think what'll, I think what we'll see next year is I think they will either make the 4,400 class either really long, so they may go like 300 miles with it and just say, we'll do 300 mile race next year. Um, or they're gonna throw some more serious rock trails and tighten up the, the they're called VCPs or virtual checkpoints. You yeah. don't know, you don't get to see them. They're basically just like virtual gates that you have to drive through. I think, to me, I think it may be interesting even as a spectator, if they took some of the iconic spots at the hammers and made them run it again, like make them go up sledge and yeah. make them run the plaque line, put, put a VCP in the middle of sledge and even put an actual, put two flags up there and say, you've yeah. got to run it. But at the same time, you know, this it's they want to when they do those multiple lap races they get worried about guys getting in traffic and doing something stupid and and i it's it's a dance out there for sure but i think uh i think you're gonna see definitely you're gonna see a lot harder utv race next year and i think you'll see a lot harder ultra four race for sure no questions asked i mean that's the move they have to do uh to to, to stay the the reputation it has and not only that but uh, it's the hammers. You have the you you have every tool in your tool belt sitting on it. Uh, use them and and you know, I don't know. It's the hardest race in the world, right? So let's make it's it the hard, hardest one hardest one day race in North America. Yeah, that's yes. what I'm saying. Yes. I think, there we go. <laughs> I think I to me I think there's ways you could get back to that. I think I, I don't I I know why they qualify. I don't like qualifying. I like it better when it was like the luck of the draw because to yeah. me those are I mean and even but even this year it was super cool to see Raul come from dead last in that car and yeah. end up in second place. Those are the stories I think that make super cool you know ultra four lore type of thing. But I think. Um, you know, I think you, you could throw some big rock trails in there and make people run the big rock trails um, or and just make it, uh, you know, go up back door, not down back door. You know, maybe yeah. maybe do back door two or three times. But then that traffic issue comes into play as well. And we've seen some and it's racing. We've seen some people make some stupid mistakes when they get in traffic. We saw uh, Miller drive over. He drove over himself with his own car this year when he was yeah. in the middle of that race. So it's uh, it's it's tricky. I mean, but. I think it's. Uh, I think there's enough criticism coming out of it this year. It's also just the place is ridden more. I mean, hammers used to be only yeah. ridden a couple times a year. Now guys go out there every weekend type of thing. Yeah. So there's more traffic. It's just back down. Yeah, and uh, you you hit my next point too, which was back door. Um, it seems I understand the traffic jam side of things, and I'm sure that there's a way that you could parse people out, maybe. You know, the first 10 that qualify have to hit back door on the first lap and then you move it down because eventually it, it thins out. I don't know how, again, pulling that out of thin air. So we'll see how that pans. But um, to not go up back door in the 4400 class, um, first off, that lets the UTV finish, you know, uh, or not necessarily finish, but that's a real deterrent for a UTV. But also one of the most iconic scenes you can ever see is Shannon Campbell in the Campbell car screaming up that, you know, there's, there's these classic images you have in your head and uh, not that you get robbed of them by any means in the negative sense, but uh, it's just such a staple of the race that I was, I was surprised that they wouldn't have been going up. I think it's, I think it's just a matter of 
the rate wanted to make the race course different every single year mm-hmm. because last year, you know, two not this this not 2020 but 2019 February they did go up backdoor. They had to go up backdoor one time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's I think it's that combination. Um, I would like to see them throw some of the classic trails back in there. I'd like to see them put sledge back in. And mm-hmm. but then it's also you know it's tough because you've got these guys out there racing. And it's, it's also a communications issue because until you're out there, you don't realize how hard it is to even talk to your pit when you're in the race. Yeah. So if you've got guys who are like still on lap one and guys coming up on them on lap two and not letting them get around them in the rock trails when you should just let them by. But yeah. there's that racer's mentality, right? Of yeah. I don't want to let this guy pass me because then he's in front of me. Well, they're already a whole lap in front of you. Just let them by. And that's when you see people make really, really – there's that, I remember Tom Ways probably about four years ago went up. He didn't even go up back door. He went right and took this crazy high line and dropped in and drove over a guy's winch line and the guy's throwing a rock at him and he's driving away. And that was, but that's King of the Hammers, man. That's, it yeah. used to be, it used to be the rule was if someone's in front of you, Dave Cole used to say, if that person's in front of you, consider their car a rock and drive yeah. over. That was just yeah. considered part of the game. Now, does he not consider that now? I think it's I, it's probably an unspoken word. Now it's you're supposed to wait for permission to drive over it because it was, I mean, Ultra 4 was pretty fast and loose when it first started. When The year that we raced it, the rule book was like five pages. Now yeah. it's like 300 pages. And I think that, that, comes with, that comes with insurance and it comes with more eyeballs on it and it comes with you know, more people seeing it and being involved in it and it's riskier and, you know, it's not, it's not 90 people on the lake bed. Like the year that we raced it back in 2009, 2010, you'd go out there and there was like, you, only the racers were out there. That was it. There were no spectators. You know, there's a few people came out and watched the race, but not a lot. Now it's 75,000 people in the desert. So it, there's a whole other logistical nightmare to worry about than whether or not you can let somebody pass somebody in the rocks type of thing. Yeah. So, it, it's tough. It really is. So do you, uh, I, I think that you have a very, that, that's a very uh, comprehensive and apt analysis of, of King of Hammers. Um, do you think that we'll have a, the rest of the Ultra Four season? I think what, I think they'll come back in the fall. I think what, I think what's going to happen is I saw a couple of announcements the other day. I, I, I know they canceled the, a race in California and then they were talking about leaving the rest of the races. Okay. But then the points, issue became a, a problem with which race they wanted to cancel on mm-hmm. the East Coast. I think they'll, I think what's going to happen across the country, and this is just the way that this country is, the minute that, is, that every, we, we're open, Tennessee's open back up now, right. and yeah. I, I drove by Waffle House and I could, there was not a parking spot in the whole place. So I think that the minute that everything's open, all the stuff that got canceled between January and June is going to be rescheduled between July and December. So I think yeah. in the falls, it's going to be everything is just going to push through no matter what. And that's, yeah. just, the yeah. way, that's just the way people are. It's, that's the human nature of Americans. You know, it's a freedom-loving country and a freedom-loving people, and they want to get out and do stuff. And so yeah. I, think, I think we're going to see every event, every race, it's just all going to happen in the back half of the year. I, I think you're exactly right. I think that once everyone – you know, oh, so so uh, Rick is actually chiming in on the on the Facebook side. Uh, Renegade Racing actually has a race uh, this Saturday uh, at Adventure Off Road Park. Um, 
I think once someone sees kind of one person poke their head out and see kind of how it goes and what happens, I think that that's when, especially around here and, you know, uh, around here, I think Renegade will have their event. If it goes well, everybody else will kind of start creeping back in and opening their schedules back up. And I think it'll probably be the same for Ultra Force. Somebody's just got to do it first or they're going to do a small stab and see how it works out. And then uh, I agree with you. I think all the events will be rescheduled for either the corrected, you know, uh, initial dates or, you know, sometimes slammed in there somehow. Yeah, I think I think the, the part that's tricky with Ultra 4 is, I mean, you're dealing with California, which is tough. Yeah. I mean, that's just, but that's just, it, it, of course, if things are different in California, because it, it's like there's as many people in California as there is the entire country of Canada. You know, it, it's a huge population. It's a densely populated state. And you know, you look at states like Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia, it's not like that. There's not as many people crammed into these spaces. So I, I think, you know, because I, I talk to friends all over the world because we have friends that live everywhere and they're like, I can't believe you're opening back up. I'm like, you got like, come on. Yes, Italy. But there's, it's this big. Italy's like Tennessee. You know, it's, uh, there's, it's, you, you have to look at, look at this whole thing and look at as America as 50 little individual countries and each one of them has to make the decision that's right for them. And I think you're right. I think, I mean, down here, I think you're just going to see it open back up and you'll see people, some people will make some decisions to, to whether to come out or not. And that's their choice. That's just the yeah. reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So with that though, uh, if you choose not to come out, um, Ian has, again, we're going to reiterate two different shows going right now. Um, tell me a little bit about the projects you're working on right now. And is there one that's most exciting to you? Yeah, so we start shooting with Motor Trend next week, and uh, I'm bringing back the uh, little Suzuki that I yeah. had originally built a long time ago. It's called. It was just basically the green Zook. I'd rebuilt it like 17 times. I yeah. told, sold that to a buddy of mine, and then uh, we were looking for just some odd projects for this year. And uh, uh, he had he had bent a rod in the motor, so we're doing uh, engine swap in the in the Zook, which will be fun because I love that rig. It's so much fun to drive. And then uh, we've got uh, uh, JK two-door stretch that we're going to start on that show. Cool. Uh, that, that one's we're doing the two-door, the Jeep Works stretch kit. So we're going to do that on a JK. And then, uh, and then I got a cab truck. So last year I built the Goat Build LJ, which was like a combination of uh, a Jeep and an Ultra 4 car sort of smashed together. And so this year I'm going to build a, uh, gonna build a cab truck and I'm going to try to take a, uh, Ultra Four or, or not Ultra Four? They got Rock Bouncer and an Expedition Travel Rig, and I'm going to try and squish them together and Dude. see what happens. So Man. we'll see what comes out of that, but that'll be a fun one for sure. That that's awesome. Also, uh, did did Jimmy from Essentially Off Road have that Zook? Yeah, yeah, okay. he still does. It's still okay. his. I, he bought it years ago, and sort of the the I told him I was like, you you buy this, uh, and but don't ever sell it. That's the deal. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll I'll tell the production company to sell it to you, and so he bought. <laughs> He's like, I'm never going to sell it. Don't worry about it. And uh, so, yeah, so, but he, uh, he brought it to Moab and been a rod in Moab. And uh, so he just had just been sitting at his house. So we're doing a, uh, it's going to, it's another diesel TDI mm -hmm. Jetta, but we're moving newer. We're going to the electronic instead of the mechanically injected diesel. So Very nice. I, uh, I've seen that in person and that is, it's so funny because first off you look at it and you're like, I know that <laughs> I've seen it. And then, uh, and then you know you look at it and you're like, there's this 
compact and dense and refined. It's only what needs to be there is there. And yeah. I, mean, I think all- it weighs. I think it weighs like 20, 2,600 pounds is what it weighs it's when, when you're ready to wheel in. And it's it's just so much. And the best story I have with that is Jimmy brought it out to Moab one year, and we were going up Moab Rim, and he was just messing around, and he just sort of climbing up stuff, just not even thinking about it. And he uh, throws it up on a rock, and he rolled it. But the thing is so light that when he rolled it, when it hit the side of the tires, it stopped rolling. So it just rolled onto its two sidewalls and then stopped. And he was sitting in front of me and I watched the thing and just flopped onto its side. And then I watched him sort of shake his head a little bit, put it in reverse, turn the wheel and just whipped it back up onto its tires again and kept going up the trail. Cause it's just, it's just so much fun. That is absolutely awesome. Uh, so you mentioned kind of the, the selling off process with the production and things like that. Um, this is a question I'm sure you get a ton of times. All these cars that you've worked on, the projects, everything like that, um, when you're done with them or you guys choose not to move forward on them anymore, what happens to them? So back in the days of Extreme 4x4 and Extreme Off-Road, those were all owned by the production company. And mm-hmm. when when uh, the original owners of RTM, Joe and Patty, they were really cool because they would just say to me, you know, I don't want to, we don't want to just sell this to anybody because some of this stuff was pretty crazy. They said, mm-hmm. we want to sell it to people that you know and you trust. So Jimmy bought a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and then he would, he would sometimes keep them, sometimes take them apart. Um, sometimes he, and then we sold a couple like Van Wolvert out of Woolies. He's got one of them. Um, some companies bought them uh, to use as promo vehicles and stuff like that. So that was that show. Uh, the deal with Motor Trend was, um, I, when we signed a deal with them to do four-wheeler, one of the caveats was I said, I'll do it as long as if I want the cars, I want to keep all the cars. And they said, we don't care what happens to the cars. We don't care about the cars. Whatever you want to do with the cars, do them. So um, everything everything that lands on Motor Trend, probably there's a couple that I don't own, but like Bazook and this JK we're doing actually for Rock Crawler, but everyone else that rolls through here, like I saw the Go Build LJ back there and, and the little the little stretch razor still back there. And yeah. So yeah. I keep them and it's, it's a sickness I have because I, I have those and then I have, I still have the 715 from the old show. I kept it. Yeah. I still well, have, uh, and then I've got everyone that I'm building for myself right now too. So I've got, I got, I think it's like 13 cars right now. Woo. 13 <laughs> cars. It's silly because, but the bad part is, is if the worst part of it is I'll like, I'll, I'll think about a car and I'll be like, oh, I only ever maintain them when they're about to go somewhere. So I'll like pull it in and be like, oh, I got to rebuild the axle this one or I got to do this. Mm-hmm. But then aside from that, nine times out of 10, I'm just like, I'll just build another one. It's easier to build another one. So we just start building and build another one as we go. So it's, it's a it's a sickness, but I'm lucky that my wife doesn't make me get rid of them. She's cool with it. So <laughs> I just I just get to keep collecting them as we go kind of thing, which is good. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really cool deal. Not only with your wife, but that's also a really cool deal that you have struck up with the uh, current production company. So good for you. Um, uh, one thing I want to ask, I'm going to make a little side note here. The, uh, that goat built chassis, they yep. also, you did a, uh, I think it was like a four seat buggy that you had built out and you yep. put like a little deep dude, one of my absolute favorites. And, uh, I think that that was, that was probably one where I was like, I was probably 19 and I was like, I'm saving my money. I'm going to order one of these. I'm going to weld it out. And I was going to do the whole nine yards, bought a razor instead. Save myself some headache. <laughs> so, so that wasn't that wasn't a bad choice by any means. But uh, mayhem off road park is that still a thing? I, I don't. Think I think I think you can get in there. I think Marvin will let you in. 
Um, but I don't think it's still, I don't think you can still, I, and, and I used to, I love riding there cause it, it had a couple of really good Creek trails and then a couple of really good hill climbs as well that weren't like super nasty. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think you can still get in if, if Marvin lets you, but it's not like open to the public kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I'm learning about all these places around here and it's like half of them. I don't know if this is a real place where you can go ride. And that's, that's a lot of like Southeast wheeling for those uh, who who are West coast or uh, we have a big group of people that listen from Australia. Uh, I don't know how it is out there, but West coast, it's all public, you know, uh, you know, land that, that is owned by the government things like that so not that way here but i was always been curious i've heard of mayhem for a long time and never known really much about it it, it was it was a great park too because it had some really good hills and a couple really good trails and it was and it was super convenient because literally you just parked the trailer and you were on the hill kind of thing so mm-hmm. it was super good but um yeah i think i mean when you go west the west coast guys are spoiled because so much of their land is is government land that you can just it's just open i mean yeah. that, that's the craziest part it's just like oh i want to i wonder what's at the top of that mountain i guess i'll drive my truck up there and find out you know it's just so easy because if it's it's just government land just drive on up there and see what's going on which is and then some of the razor stuff out there i mean i was out in colorado uh, just driving through and there was like a, a railway track that was just sort of like following the, the mountain but there were no track. There was no rail, railway tracks on it anymore. But it was just side by sides driving, and it like followed the river. And it was just it was. A, I was like, I was like, that would be a pretty bad trip to be on because that'd be fun. Yeah. But the, the problem they have is their states aren't as lenient with making them street legal. So it's mm-hmm. harder to you play that game, right? I think it's I think it's super cool if they're street legal around here. And then mm-hmm. I think in places like Moab, I think it's almost a, a necessity. But I think it's smart that they did that for sure because I, I know. Manufacturers aren't fond on that, but I think it's I think it's at least able to drive on the road to get from trail to trail. I think it's good. Yeah, I know that's that's one of the big things that so there's like three things that I've taken away from your show and I, I bring them up or every single time I'm wheeling, I think about them. One of which is you explained uh, how a tire size. So say, for example, you have a 37 and you did a measurement of like if you're over halfway on the tire, it'll actually try to dig under. I can't tell you. How many times I look at a ledge and I'm like, my tire is going to try to climb under that. And I literally hear you in my head giving an explanation. It is crazy. Also, the explanation on a limit strap in the front, uh, like right on top of the differential. It unloads. Man, I I had a discussion about that last week. Um, And and the other one is just in general trail riding. You actually built a... uh, an overlanding Tacoma with hot water and a shower and stuff. And dude, that right there, I, I think about that all the time because I'm like, I could just, I'm a software engineer and some days I sit at my desk too long and I'm like, I'm going to build a truck. I'm going to go in the woods and no one's going to ever hear from me. <laughs> and yeah, I can I've, got, I've got a Ram charger right now. That's what we're putting together for it. it it's like a little expedition travel thing just because I think some of that stuff, I mean, when you go out and, and just, just some of those like, not always hitting the hardcore trail, just going out and having fun. I think it's, I think it's definitely a good time just to go out and, and just like do a little bit of camping, do a little bit of wheeling. I love, to me, that's a completely different part of the sport, which is so much fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like that. I think that's super cool. And it's, it's a different world. I mean, that all expedition travel stuff. I mean, I went to the four wheeler adventure expo in sin wherever it was southern california right before all this virus stuff went crazy um man it's crazy 
like the stuff that's there and and people with you know got their kitchen set up and they're cooking and they got a motorcycle and i was just yeah. like man this is it, it's pretty neat it's a whole other part and that's what makes off-roading so cool right you've got there's so many different kinds of it there's there's yeah. Baja, there's ultra four there's rock bouncing there's trail riding there's jeeping there's adventure expedition travel there's tons of stuff there's so many different parts of the same genre i think that that, that makes it really really cool because not a lot of other motorsports are like that you know yeah i definitely agree with you um one thing i've always been curious is when you have the deep and you have the full size uh, and you're going through places like Winrock, Brimstone, Royal Blue, all that stuff. Have you guys ever thought about doing, you know, a, a two-day trek uh, straight through and then going up maybe to, uh, you know, the Kentucky, Virginia side of things? Uh, I would love to watch or even, you know, just watch over social media. Some of you guys, like uh, I think Matt did the Trail to SEMA, uh, yep. something like that, you know, where you guys go straight through uh, Winrock and kind of map all that TWRA stuff out and just say, hey, uh, you know, this is where we're going and do the East Coast version of a trail to SEMA. Maybe certainly would be fun. I mean, I think there's a lot of East Coast stuff that people just don't even know about. You know, yeah. sometimes just like, like, and it's some stuff that I don't even know about. Like I'll talk, Ricky did that Overland Adventure thing. Lots yeah. of um, and I watched it and he went on that. I was like, man, that's just so cool. I think, you know, we did the, we did the, you know, the whiskey trips. And then this year we did the one with, uh, with four wheeler. Uh, we're doing one again this year, but we're going to go to a barbecue festival is where we're going to end. So then we're going to start somewhere else and do some other riding. But yeah, I think it'd be cool to do some like legit, like stay in the dirt for as long as you can kind of stuff. It's harder on the East Coast because there's so much private property involved. The yeah. West Coast, it's so easy because you just stay off the road and you can stay in the dust for so long type of thing. So, but it certainly would be cool. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Maybe I'll steal well, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, um... Hubert Roland from Nitro Circus, he actually um, oh, he, he, the coast to coast. Yeah. So that is where yeah, I had him on a couple times and uh, he actually lives just down the road from me. And man, I talked to him and I'm like, how do you even prepare for this? How do you do this? And we actually had, I think we, we have three episodes with him. It's five and a half hours. Uh, Hubert can talk. Everybody that knows Hubert knows Hubert will talk for a while. Yep. Uh, and I mean that with the most love. <laughs> but uh yeah man he detailed it out it's a really really cool thing but um something like that where you do you know a big chunk of the country you know maybe not the country but like a couple days i think is something doable and i've always wanted to see it done with full-size rigs where you know they try and stay more on the trails or country roads at least uh than taking the highways because i know uh like mel way to offer off-road evolution he did he does the JK experience and those are really great, but they do a lot of highway miles. And I think it'd be really cool to see people go, you know, straight through mostly trail stuff. Yeah, it was good. That like ultimate adventure, they try to stay off yeah. interstates and they just do regular, regular back roads and stuff. And, and I mean, when we went up and did Maine and Pennsylvania and stuff like that, it was, we did a lot of, really a lot of roads and a lot of back roads and stuff, which was fun. But mm -hmm. it is, like I said, it's, it's tricky on the East coast, just linking that stuff together, trying, trying to figure yeah. it out, but it's, it's definitely doable and it could be tons of fun for sure. I think Ricky just went on one like himself not too long ago where he just did like a little bachelor party ride with his Jeep up somewhere. So he yeah. may have an idea of where to go for sure, which which would be cool because he's always kind of out poking around looking for stuff to do, which is neat. Yeah, I actually uh, I actually met Ricky about a month or two ago, so we we've, we've been riding razors here and there. So it's been it's been nice to meet him, and that's Ricky uh, Ricky Barry over at RCB uh, Performance. So he's a good guy to follow on Instagram and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, 
But uh, one more thing, and someone actually asked me to bring this up to you. Uh, you built a big S10 cab truck, bright lime green. Yep. And and one, I don't remember if he was a viewer or how you guys got in touch, but uh, he actually built a scale replica. Yep. I, don't, I don't know if you've seen the RC rock bouncing scene and all the, just the kind of explosion of that market. Um, has that ever interested you as just a little side project to kick around? I did, I did a couple RC things when my son was younger mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's fun and stuff. Um, I, some, I, I don't get into it as hardcore as some of the guys get into it. It blows my mind. Like some of the stuff, because we used to get all the emails and stuff and invites out. And we, there was one scale expo thing that we were looked into at uh, one point in time where like it was like legit like rules if you rolled it you couldn't reach down and pick it up yourself you had to get another uh winch line over yeah. and hook onto it and pull it over and stuff yeah it, it, it's super cool i uh I, I get too excited about how fast they go and i take them out and rip them around and smash into things and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff but i uh i think they're super cool and i love the scale stuff it blows my mind how detailed some of these things get for sure some yeah. of the stuff like when you see some of the stuff on social media like on instagram you'll see a picture and it's like, wait a minute, is that an RC or is that a real vehicle? Cause some of them are pretty, pretty cool for sure. Yeah. Um, so with that, I got, I got just a couple like rattle off questions here. Uh, the first one, what's your favorite rig you've ever built um, and why? Uh, probably the, right now, probably the 715. If that's mm. the one that that's my favorite. Cause it was just it, like all the stars aligned to get that one. It literally, you know, we kind of faked finding it in the junkyard for TV, but that's literally where it came from. Someone dragged it across the scales and sold it for scrap. And it's just, you know, it's super rare vehicle. They only built like 68,000 of them. And, uh, and then the cool part was I met the guy who worked for in Birmingham, who bought it, who didn't buy it, but he worked for emergency management in Birmingham that got it from the US military. So I was able to meet the guy that had worked for the government who ended up putting that as a forest service truck in uh, in Birmingham, which was super cool. So I think it's, uh, it was definitely, uh, that's probably up there at the top of my list of my favorites for sure. So now uh, is this car still leaf sprung? Oh yeah. Oh, leaf springs all the way. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yep. That's it. Yeah. You can't have a 1968 M715 and put it on coilovers. That's just wrong. So yeah, yeah so it's, it's leaf sprung all the way around. Yeah. And I love that thing. It's Hemi. 545 RFE range box into a 205, 14 bolt rear, 60 front, leaf springs all the way around. Um, and it, it just worked. It works so great in Moab. It's 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 a perfect Moab truck. It's a little big to wheel on the East Coast. It's it's a big truck. Those things are, are bigger than a full size truck. So the trees come out and get it, which is why I don't wheel it a lot on the East Coast. I kind of stick it just out to the West Coast for sure. All right, I got one last question. Uh, and this was this was one I got more than once. How do you style the hair? <laughs> you know, if you there was on my YouTube channel an actual how I style my hair video at one point in time, but it uh, it takes like five five seconds. I just put all the spiker in my hair and just stick it all up like that, and away we go. So it's uh, it's a little long right now because I haven't been able to get it cut. I got to try to get it cut before next week. <laughs> There's nobody cutting hair right now. So, yeah. but uh, yeah, no, it, 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 it's quick, quick and easy. Quick yeah. And easy. I, actually, I actually remember seeing that video. I wish I could had the time to find it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's on there. It's on the, I think it's on your Instagram. You may have to do some real good searching. 
uh, but it's definitely on there. And it's, it is pretty funny because your hair goes from completely normal, like just completely down to all, it's like, yep. boom, it's up and it's yep. ready and it's there. Straight up and we're ready to go. Yep, that's <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> and I can tell how old you are by how, so like if someone says, you remind me of syndrome from the Incredibles, then they're like, you know, 20 to 30 years old. If they say that I remind them of Heat Miser from, uh, that's an old show that I watched as a kid, then you're yeah. like my age, then you're like 45 years old, 45 yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything that we didn't cover uh, that you want to talk about? No, I think we covered a lot of stuff. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I had an absolute blast. Um, what we'll do is we'll close out here and then uh, we'll stay and chat for a second after the broadcast closes. But uh, thank you for your time. Anybody you need to give a shout out to or anything like that? No, no, I'm good. I think we covered everybody we need to shout out to. So. All right, so, perfect. Ian, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you in just a moment. Perfect. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, today's show is awesome. We get to talk about one of my absolute favorite topics and some stuff that's been on my mind for a while. Before we get into that, uh, today's show is completely powered by Supergrip ATV Tires. We work, you play. Supergrip ATV Tires are the most dependable tires in the ATV industry. The six-ply aggressive tire features, uh, they feature an available flat preventative liner that resists and seals punctures so that you can venture anywhere with the confidence that Supergrip will get you home. Supergrip ATV is different from other manufacturers. They've chosen to offer quality over quantity. A select group of styles designed to fit most of any type terrain, Supergrip ATV tires are the most durable ATV and UTV tires on the market today. We are known for our industrial and mining tires in which tough, rugged tires are needed for uh, are, are needed and demanded. Supergrip has carried that same quality over into our ATV tire lineup while providing consumers with fantastic choices. One of those fantastic choices is the Supergrip ATV K9 tire. That's the car, or I'm sorry, that's the tire that I run on my Razor uh, this very moment. Took it out this weekend. Um, again, they, the, the sidewalls in my Kevlar have finally kind of broken in. They feel great. I ran about five pounds this weekend. And, and, and not to deter you by any means, but uh, they really, 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 really hook up. And uh, you need to be ready because uh, it's, it pushes a lot of power throughout the drivetrain because you have so much traction. The one-inch tread depth, the Kevlar sidewalls, the, the firm compound that, that somehow acts like a sticky tire, uh, it's, it's amazing. I'm amazed by the tires, but they really, really hook up. So it looks like I'll be doing some uh, driveline replacements and upgrades because I have just so much traction. The tires are wearing well. Uh, the first few rides, it really started to feel like a sticky tire, but now that I'm in them and they've kind of broken in, uh, they feel like a sticky tire all the time, but I'm getting the durability of that hard, firm compound. Super Grip ATV tires. Uh, you can find them at any retailers. There's a shipment coming in mid-May and another one at the end of the month. The tires are a little hard to find right now, but I promise you contact your favorite retailer. Like one of our sponsors, All Things UTV carries the Super Grip ATV K9 tire. Give them a call. See if they've got them in stock. If they do, 
I personally recommend the Kevlar if you've got the extra funds to do so. However, the regular nylon belt is not a bad option at all. Definitely not the deal breaker. SupergripATV.com, SupergripATV on Instagram and Facebook. Another sponsor of ours is DinoJet. DinoJet has sent me a clutch kit and a PowerVision 3 tuner. Uh, I do want to talk about it for a second because I took it out this weekend and the way that uh, the, the clutch kit works is it lets you fine tune to your application. I mean, some crazy level of adjustment that you can make. Um, out of the box, I set my car up. I run 30s. They're a little bit of a heavier 30. Uh, obviously, like I just mentioned, there's a lot of grip to them. So I geared it uh, for a trail 30 to 32 setup. Um, and it's, it, it really is perfect. Uh, a lot of low. I got my low back, which is awesome. Um, I think I want just a little more high end. I don't want to have to you know, be fully in the gas for me to start building some speed. So what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to give DinoJet a call. I'm going to tell them how I feel, tell them uh, exactly what my intentions are, and I'll be able to make adjustments in the weights to get the ride that I want. I'm really, really glad to have them on board because this is the top of the line clutch kit. This is the top of the line tuner. Every single tuner for Razors Can-Ams uses the DinoJet uh, PowerVision module to send the tune over. I just used the DinoJet tune and I was thoroughly impressed this weekend. Didn't have belt slippages, didn't have anything to worry about, didn't ever feel like my machine was bogging down. The DinoJet Stage 2 clutch kit really fixed up my machine. Seriously. I know that it sounds kind of I'm using my ad voice, but really, this is an upgrade that right after tires and wheels, uh, you know, I would even buy something like this before axles and things like that. So, highly recommend dinojet.com, dinojet research inc on Facebook and Instagram. Another sponsor of ours is Infinite Offroad. Infinite Offroad has been with the show from the very get-go. They offer light bars, light pods, wheel rings, whips, rock lights, and everything in between with a crazy 25-year, you-break-it-they-fix-it warranty. That warranty is pretty much unmatched by anyone or any company I think I've ever heard of. Um, again, I'm just I'm so glad to have them on board. Uh, they're a huge, huge deal to have, and, and I'm just really, really glad because their customer service is incredible. Uh, I know the owner personally, and he's an excellent person to deal with. And not only is the customer service side excellent, but the products themselves go miles ahead. They are where top-end brands that are thousands of dollars for light bars and light pods and you know the other end of the spectrum. Infinite Off-Road is in the perfect spot where you're going to get the best equipment for the best price. Uh, it really is awesome. I used their light bars when they first came out and I just got a set uh, a couple months ago from him and the technology, how much and how far the technology has increased and, and gone, uh, it, it's really it's really just amazing. I, I cannot, cannot, cannot speak highly enough of how effective and how bright those pods are, uh, how uh, sturdy they are, and it doesn't even really matter because they come with that 25-year warranty that even covers accidental damage. InfiniteOffRoad.com, code word, rocks at checkout r-o-c-k-s to get 10 percent off the entire website that's 10 percent off your rock lights 10 percent off your whips everything absolutely incredible code word rocks at checkout 
infiniteoffroad.com. Last but not least, uh, one of the most useful sponsors I have for sure, All Things UTV. Um, All Things UTV, basically they're your one-stop shop for everything. If it's an RS1 diff, if it's axles, if it's radius rods, A-arms, you know, uh, suspension upgrades. Let's talk about the Razorade tender spring upgrade. I ran it on my car, ran it this weekend, definitely softened up my ride. Really, really enjoy having that on my car. Uh, turns your car back into a dual rate system rather than using that crappy crushed tender spring that's on your car right now. Um, really, really happy to have that. Uh, if you're looking for the next stage, instead of the Razor 8 tender spring upgrade, uh, All Things UTV actually offers a Cloud 9 full spring kit. Turn your car into a full dual rate system with crossover rings. That's allthingsutv.com. All Things UTV on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, now we're up to date. Today on the show, I have Nick from RC Command. He is the leader in the RC rock bouncing world. He is also uh, an excellent guy to deal with, and I don't think there's anyone that likes rock bouncing more than Nick. I, I just don't. And and this guy is uh, has his own show on the hill that airs on Facebook. He was doing eight nights in a row uh, during the quarantine here. Uh, I'm sure it'll kind of spread out a little bit more as time goes on, but uh, we cover everything, and I'm really excited to have Nick on. I, I hope you can hear it. Um, we had a great time. Not to mention, all episodes are now on Facebook Live and YouTube when we record them. So go ch- if you miss it, if you want to see what we're talking about, go check them out on YouTube. And uh, without further ado, Nick from RC Command. <laughs> 